0: The president's concern about Cohen cooperating may have been directed at the Southern District of New York investigation into other aspects of the president's dealings with Cohen rather than an investigation of Trump Tower Moscow. There is also some evidence that the president's concern about Cohen cooperating was based on the president's stated belief that Cohen would provide false testimony against the president in an attempt to obtain a lesser sentence for his unrelated criminal conduct. The president tweeted that Manafort, unlike Cohen, refused to break and make up stories in order to get a deal. And after Cohen pleaded guilty to making false statements to Congress, the president said what Cohen's trying to do is get a reduced sentence. So he's lying about a project that everybody knew about. But the president also appeared to defend the underlying conduct, saying even if Cohen was right, it doesn't matter because I was allowed to do whatever I wanted during the campaign. As described above, there is evidence that the president knew that Cohen made false statements about the Trump Tower Moscow project and that Cohen did so to protect the president and minimize the president's connections to Russia during the campaign. Finally, the president's statements insinuating that members of Cohen's family committed crimes after Cohen began cooperating with the government could be viewed as an effort to retaliate against Cohen and chill further testimony adverse to the president by Cohen or others. It is possible that the president believes, as reflected in his tweets, that Cohen made up stories in order to get a deal for himself and get his wife and father-in-law off scot-free. It also is possible that the president's mention of Cohen's wife and father-in-law were not intended to affect Cohen as a witness, but rather were part of a public relations strategy aimed at discrediting Cohen and deflecting attention away from the president on Cohen-related matters. But the president's suggestion that Cohen's family member Family members committed crimes happened more than once, including just before Cohen was sentenced, at the same time that, as the president stated that Cohen should, in my opinion, serve a full and complete sentence, and again, just before Cohen was scheduled to testify before Congress. The timing of the statements supports an inference that they weren't intended, at least in part, to discourage Cohen from further cooperation. L, overarching factual issues. Although this report does not contain a traditional prosecution decision or declination decision, the evidence supports several general conclusions relevant to analysis of the facts concerning the president's course of conduct. One, three features of this case render it atypical compared to the heartland obstruction of justice prosecutions brought by the Department of Justice. First, the conduct involved actions by the president. Some of the conduct did not implicate the president's constitutional authority and raises garden-variety obstruction of justice issues. Other events we investigated, however, drew upon the president's Article II authority, which raised constitutional issues that we addressed in Volume 2, Section 3B. A factual analysis of that conduct would have to take into account both that the president acts were facially lawful and that his position as head of the executive branch provides him with unique and powerful means of influencing official proceedings, subordinate officers, and potential witnesses. Second, many obstruction cases involve the attempted or actual cover-up of an underlying crime. Personal criminal conduct can furnish strong evidence that the individual had an improper obstructive purpose. See, for example, United States versus Willoughby, or that he contemplated an effect on an official proceeding. See, for example, United States versus Bende. But proof of such a crime is not an element of an obstruction offense. See United States versus Greer stating and applying the obstruction sentencing guideline that obstruction of a criminal investigation is punishable even if the prosecution is ultimately unsuccessful or if the investigation ultimately reveals no underlying crime. Obstruction of justice can be motivated by a desire to protect non-criminal personal interests, to protect against investigations where underlying criminal liability falls into a gray area or to avoid personal embarrassment. The injury to the integrity of the justice system is the same regardless of whether a person committed an underlying wrong. In this investigation, the evidence does not establish that the president was involved in an underlying crime related to Russian election interference, but the evidence does point to a range of other possible personal motives animating the president's conduct. These include concerns that continued investigation would call into question the legitimacy of his election and potential uncertainty about whether certain events, such as advance notice of WikiLeaks' release of hacked information or the June 9, 2016 meeting between senior campaign officials and Russians, could be seen as criminal activity by the president, his campaigner, or family. Third, many of the president's acts directed at witnesses, including discouragement of cooperation with the government and suggestions of possible future pardons occurred in public view. While it may be more difficult to establish that public facing acts were motivated by a corrupt intent, the president's power to influence actions, persons and events is enhanced by his unique ability to attract attention through use of mass communications. And no principle of law excludes public acts from the scope of obstruction statutes. If the likely effect of the act is to intimidate witnesses or to alter their testimony, the justice system's integrity is equally threatened. Two, although the events we investigated involve discrete acts, For example, the president's statement to Comey about the Flynn investigation, his termination of Comey, and his efforts to remove the special counsel, it is important to view the president's pattern of conduct as a whole. That pattern sheds light on the nature of the president's acts and the inferences that can be drawn about his intent. Our investigation found multiple acts by the president that were capable of exerting undue influence over law enforcement investigations, including the Russian interference and obstruction investigations. The incidents were often carried out through one-on-one meetings in which the president sought to use his official power outside of usual channels. These actions ranged from efforts to remove the special counsel and to reverse the effect of the attorney general's recusal to the attempted use of official power to limit the scope of the investigation, to direct and indirect contacts with witnesses with the potential to influence their testimony. Viewing the acts collectively can help to illuminate their significance. For example, the president's direction to McGann to have the special counsel removed was followed almost immediately by his direction to Lewandowski to tell the attorney general to limit the scope of the Russia investigation to prospective election interference only, a temporal connection that suggests that both acts were taken with a related purpose with respect to the investigation. The president's efforts to influence the investigation were mostly unsuccessful, but that is largely because the persons who surrounded the president declined to carry out orders or accede to his requests. Comey did not end the investigation of Flynn which ultimately resulted in Flint's prosecution and conviction for lying to the FBI. McGahn did not tell the acting attorney general that the special counsel must be removed, but was instead prepared to resign over the president's order. Lewandowski and Dearborn did not deliver the president's message to Sessions that he should confine the Russia investigation to future election meddling only. And McGahn refused to recede from his recollections about events surrounding the president's direction to have the special counsel removed, despite the president's multiple demands that he do so. Consistent with that pattern, the evidence we obtained would not support potential obstruction charges against the president's aides and associates beyond those already filed. In considering the full scope of the the conduct we investigated, The president's actions can be divided into two distinct phases, reflecting a possible shift in the president's motives. In the first phase, the president fired Comey. The president had been assured that the FBI had not opened an investigation of him personally. The president deemed it critically important to make public that he was not under investigation. And he included that information in his termination letter to Comey after other efforts to have that information disclosed were unsuccessful. Soon after he fired Comey, however, the president became aware that investigators were conducting an an obstruction of justice inquiry into his own conduct. That awareness marked a significant change in the president's conduct and the start of a second phase of action. The president launched public attacks on the investigation and individuals involved in it who could possess evidence adverse to the president while in private, the president engaged in a series of targeted efforts to control the investigation. For instance, the president attempted to remove the special counsel. He sought to have Attorney Sessions unrecuse himself and limit the investigation. He sought to prevent public disclosure of information about the June 9, 2016 meeting between Russians and campaign officials. And he used public forums to attack potential witnesses might offer adverse information and to praise witnesses who decline to cooperate with the government. Judgments about the nature of the president's motives during each phase would be informed by the totality of the evidence. Three, legal defenses to the application of obstruction of justice statutes to the president. The president's personal counsel has written to this office to advance statutory and constitutional defenses to the potential application of the obstruction of justice statutes to the president's conduct. As a statutory matter, the president's counsel has argued that a core obstruction of justice statute, 18 U.S.C. section 1512C2, does not cover the president's actions. As a constitutional matter, The president's counsel argued that the president cannot obstruct justice by exercising his constitutional authority to close Department of Justice investigations or terminate the FBI director. Under that view, any statute that restricts the president's exercise of those powers would impermissibly intrude on the president's constitutional role. The president's counsel has conceded that the president may be subject to criminal laws that do not directly involve exercises of his Article II authority, such as laws prohibiting bribing witnesses or subordinating perjury. But counsel has made a categorical argument that the president's exercise of his constitutional authority here to terminate an FBI director and to close investigations cannot constitutionally constitute obstruction of justice. In analyzing counsel's statutory arguments, we concluded that the president's proposed interpretation of section 1512C2 is contrary to the litigating position of the Department of Justice and is not supported by statutory construction. As for the constitutional arguments, we recognize that the Department of Justice and the courts have not definitively resolved these constitutional issues. We therefore analyze the president's position through the framework of Supreme Court precedent addressing the separation of powers. Under that framework, we concluded Article 2 of the Constitution does not categorically and permanently immunize the president from potential liability for the conduct that we investigated. Rather, our analysis led us to conclude that the obstruction of justice statutes can validly prohibit a president's corrupt efforts to use his official powers to curtail, end, or interfere with an investigation. A, statutory defenses to the application of obstruction of justice provisions to the conduct under investigation. The obstruction of justice statute most readily applicable to our investigation is 18 U.S.C. Section 1512C2. Section 1512C provides whoever corruptly Alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, or otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding, or attempts to do so, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. The Department of Justice has taken the position that Section 1512C2 states a broad, independent, and unqualified prohibition on obstruction of justice. While defendants have argued that subsection C2 should be read to cover only acts that would impair the availability or integrity of evidence because that is subsection C1's focus, strong arguments weigh against that proposed limitation. The text of Section 1512C2 confirms that its sweep is not tethered to Section 1512C1, courts have so interpreted it, its history does not counsel otherwise, and no principle of statutory construction dictates a contrary view. On its face, therefore, Section 1512C2 applies to all corrupt means of obstructing a proceeding, pending, or contemplated, including by proper exercise of official power." In addition, other statutory provisions that are potentially applicable to certain conduct we investigated broadly prohibit obstruction of proceedings that are pending before courts, grand juries, and Congress. C 18 U.S.C., Sections 1503 and 1505. Congress has also specifically prohibited witness tampering. C 18 U.S.C., Section 1512B. One, the text of Section 1512C2 prohibits a broad range of obstructive acts. Several textual features of Section 1512C2 supports the conclusion that the provision broadly prohibits corrupt means of obstructing justice and is not limited by the more specific prohibitions in Section 1512C1, which focus on evidence impairment. First, the text of Section 1512C2 is unqualified. It reaches acts that obstruct, influence, or impede any official proceeding when committed corruptly. Nothing in Section 1512C2's text limits the provision to acts that would impair the integrity or availability of evidence for use in an official proceeding. In contrast, Section 1512C1 explicitly includes the requirement that the defendant act with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding. A requirement that Congress also included in two other sections of Section 1512, c 18 U.S.C. Sections 1512A2B2, use of physical force with intent to cause a person to destroy an object with intent to impair the integrity or availability of the object for use in an official proceeding, 1512B2B, Use of intimidation, threats, corrupt persuasion, or misleading conduct with intent to cause a person to destroy an object with intent to impair the integrity or availability of the object for use in an official proceeding. But no comparable intent or conduct element focused on evidence impairment appears in Section 1512C2. The intent element in Section 1512C2 comes from the word corruptly. See, for example, United States versus McKibben's. The intent element is important because the word corruptly is what serves to separate criminal and innocent acts of obstruction. And the conduct element in section 1512C2 is obstructing, influencing, or impeding a proceeding. Congress is presumed to have acted intentionally in the disparate inclusion and exclusion of evidence impairment language. See, Loughran versus United States, when Congress included particular language in one section of a statute, but omits it in another, let alone in the very next provision, this court presumes that Congress intended a difference in meaning. Quoting Russell o. versus United States. Second, the structure of 1512 supports the conclusion that Section 1512C2 defines an independent offense. Section 1512C2 delineates a complete crime with different elements from Section 1512C1, and each subsection of 1512C contains its own attempt prohibition. Underscoring that there are independent prohibitions, the two subsections of 1512C are connected by the conjunction OR, indicating that each provides an alternative basis for criminal liability. See Laughrin. Ordinary use of OR is almost always disjunctive, that is, the words it connects are to be given separate meanings. In Laughrin, for example, the Supreme Court relied on the use of the word OR to hold that adjacent and overlapping subsections of the bank fraud statute. 18 U.S.C. section 1344 state distinct offenses and that subsection 1344 therefore should not be interpreted to contain an additional element specified only in subsection 1344 one. See also Shaw versus United States recognizing that the subsection, subsections of the bank fraud statute overlap substantially, but identifying distinct circumstances covered by each. And here, as in Lawren, Section 1512C's two clauses have separate numbers, line breaks before, between, and after them, an equivalent indentation, thus placing the clauses visually on an equal footing and indicating that they have separate meanings. Third, the introductory word otherwise in Section 1512C2 signals that the provision covers obstructive acts that are different from those listed in section 1512C1. See Black's Law Dictionary 1101. Otherwise means in a different manner, in another way, or in other ways. See also American Heritage College Dictionary online. Are we breaking this down to the lowest common denominator? One, in another way differently. Two, under other circumstances. See also Gooch versus United States, characterizing otherwise as a broad term and holding that a statutory prohibition on kidnapping for ransom or reward or otherwise is not limited by the word rant, words ransom and reward to kidnappings for pecuniary benefits Collazos versus United States construing otherwise in 28 USC section 24661C to reach beyond the specific examples Listed in prior subsections, thereby covering the myriad means that human ingenuity might devise to permit a person to avoid the jurisdiction of a court. Big A versus United States, recognizing that otherwise is defined to mean in a different way or manner and holding that the word otherwise introducing the residual clause in the Armed Career Criminal Act, 18 U.S.C., Section 924E2B2 can but need not necessarily refer to a crime that is similar to the listed examples in some respects, but different in others. The purpose of the word otherwise in Section 1512C2 is therefore to clarify that the provision covers obstructive acts other than the destruction of physical evidence with the intent to pro- to re- impair its integrity or availability, which is the conduct addressed in Section 1512C1, The word otherwise does not signal that section 1512C2 has less breadth in covering obstructive conduct than the language of the provision implies. We just read a whole section on what otherwise means. Two, (laughs) judicial decisions support a broad reading of section 1512C2. Courts have not limited section 1512C2 to conduct that impairs evidence, but instead have read it to cover obstructive acts in any form. As one court explained, this expansive subsection operates as a catch-all to cover otherwise obstructive behavior that might constitute a more specific offense, like document destruction, which is listed in C1, United States versus Volpondesto. For example, in United States versus Ring, the court rejected the argument that Section 1512C2's reference to conduct that otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding is limited to conduct that is similar to the type of conduct prescribed in subsection C1, namely conduct that impairs the integrity or availability of records, documents, or other objects for use in an official proceeding. The court explained that the meaning of section 1512C2 is plain on its face and courts have upheld convictions under section 1512C2 that did not involve evidence impairment, but instead resulted from conduct, and more broadly thwarted arrests or investigations. See, for example, United States versus Martinez. Police officer tipped off suspects about issuing of arrest warrants before outstanding warrants could be executed, thereby potentially interfering with an ongoing grand jury proceeding. United States versus Ahrensfeld. officer disclosed the existence of an undercover investigation to his target, United States versus Phillips, defendant disclosed identity of an undercover officer, thus preventing him from making controlled purchases from methamphetamine dealers. Those cases illustrate that Section 1512C2 applies to corrupt acts, including by public officials, that frustrate the commencement or conduct of a proceeding, and not just to acts that make evidence unavailable or impair its integrity. Section 1512C2's breath is reinforced by the similarity of its language to the Omnibus Clause of 18 U.S.C. Section 1503, which covers anyone who corruptly obstructs or impedes or endeavors to influence, obstruct, or impede the due administration of justice. That clause of Section 1503 follows two more specific clauses that protect jurors, judges, and court officers. The omnibus clause has nevertheless been construed to be far more general in scope than the earlier clauses of the statute, United States versus Aguilar. The omnibus clause is essentially a catch-all provision which generally prohibits conduct that interferes with the due administration of justice, United States versus Brinson, Courts have accordingly given it a non restrictive reading, United States versus Kumar, collecting cases from the 3rd, 4th, 6th, 7th, and 11th Circuits. As one court has explained, the omnibus clause prohibits acts that are similar in result rather than manner to the conduct described in the first part of the statute, United States versus Howard. With the, while the specific clauses forbid certain means of obstructing justice, The omnibus clause aims at obstruction of justice itself, regardless of the means used to reach that result. Given the similarity of Section 1512C2 to Section 1503's omnibus clause, Congress would have expected Section 1512C2 to cover acts that produced a similar result to the evidence impairment provisions, for example, the result of obstructing justice rather than covering only acts that were similar in in manner. Read this way, section 1512c2 serves a distinct function in the federal obstruction of justice statutes. It captures corrupt conduct other than document destruction that has the natural tendency to obstruct contemplated as well as pending proceedings. Section 1512c2 overlaps with other obstruction statutes, but it does not render them superfluous. Section 1503, for example, which covers pending grand jury and judicial proceedings, and Section 1505, which covers pending administrative and congressional proceedings, reach endeavors to influence, obstruct, or impede the proceedings. A broader test, inchoate violations, than Section 1512C2's attempt standard, which requires a substantial step towards a completed offense. See United States versus Sampson. Efforts to witness tamper that rise to the level of an endeavor yet fall short of an attempt cannot be prosecuted under Section 1512. United States versus leisure collecting cases, recognizing the difference between the endeavor and attempt standards in 18 U.S.C. Section 1519, which prohibits destruction of documents or records in contemplation of an investigation or proceeding does not require the nexus showing under Aguilar which Section 1512C2 demands. C, for example, United States versus yielding. The requisite knowledge and intent under Section 1519 can be present, even if the accused lacks knowledge that he is likely to succeed in obstructing the matter. United States versus Gray. In enacting Section 1519, Congress rejected any requirement that the government proves a link between a defendant's conduct and an imminent or or pending official proceeding. The existence of even substantial overlap is not uncommon in criminal statutes. Lafren, the fact that there is now some overlap between Section 1503 and Section 1512 is no more intolerable than the fact that there is some overlap between the omnibus clause of Section 1503 and the other provisions of Section 1503 itself. But given The sections 1503, 1505, and 1519 each reach conduct that section 1512C2 does not. The overlap provides no reason to give section 1512C2 an artificially limited construction. Three, the legislative history of section 1512C2 does not justify narrowing its text. Given the straightforward statutory command in Section 1512C2, there is no reason to resort to legislative history, United States versus Gonzalez. In any event, the legislative history of Section 1512C2 is not a reason to impose extra textual limitation on its reach. Congress enacted Section 1512C2 as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002, the relevant section of the statute was entitled tampering with a record or otherwise impeding an official proceeding. That title indicates that Congress intended the two clauses to have independent effect. Section 1512C was added as a floor amendment in the Senate and explained as closing a certain loophole with respect to document shredding. But those explanations do not limit the enacted text. See Pittson Coal Group v. Seven. It is not the law that a statute can have no effects which are not explicitly mentioned in its legislative history. See also Encino Motorcars, LLC v. Navarro. Even if Congress did not foresee all of the applications of the statute, that is no reason not to give the statutory text a fair reading. The floor statements thus cannot detract from the meaning of the enacted text. See Barnhart v. Sigmund Coal Company. Floor statements from two senators cannot amend the clear and unambiguous language of a statute. We see no reason to give greater weight to the views of two senators than to the collective votes of both houses, which are memorialized in the unambiguous statutory text. That principle has particular force where one of the proponents of the amendment to Section 1512 introduced his remarks is only briefly elaborating on some of the specific provisions contained in this bill. Indeed. The language Congress used in Section 1512C2, prohibiting, corruptly, obstructing, influencing, or impeding any official proceeding or attempting to do so, parallels a provision that Congress considered years earlier in a bill designed to strengthen protections against witness tampering and obstruction of justice. While the earlier provision is not a direct antecedent of Section 1512C2, Congress's understanding of the broad scope of the earlier provision is instructive, recognizing that the proper administration of justice may be impeded or thwarted by a variety of corrupt methods, limited only by the imagination of the criminally inclined, Congress considered a bill that would have amended Section 1512 by making it a crime when a person corruptly influences, obstructs, or impedes the enforcement and prosecution of federal law. Administration of a law under which an, an official proceeding is being or may be conducted or the exercise of a federal legislative power of inquiry. The Senate committee explained that the purpose of preventing an obstruction of or miscarriage of justice cannot be fully carried out by a simple enumeration of the commonly prosecuted obstruction offenses. There must also be protection against the rare type of conduct That is the product of the inventive criminal mind and which also thwarts justice. The report gave examples of conduct actually prosecuted under the current residual clause in 18 U.S.C. Section 1503, which would probably not be covered in this series of provisions without a residual clause. One prominent example was a conspiracy to cover up the Watergate burglary and its aftermath by having the Central Intelligence Agency seek to interfere with an ongoing FBI inter- investigation of the bl- the burglary the report therefore indicates a congressional awareness not only that residual clause language resembling section 1512c2 broadly covers a wide variety of obstructive conduct but also that such language reaches the improper use of governmental processes to obstruct justice specifically the watergate cover-up orchestrated by White House officials, including the president himself. Four, general principles of statutory construction do not suggest that Section 1512C2 is inapplicable to the conduct in this investigation. The requirement of fair warning in criminal law, the interest in avoiding due process concerns and potentially vague statutes, and the rule of lenity do not justify narrowing the reach of Section 1512C2's text. As with other criminal laws, the Supreme Court has exercised restraint in interpreting obstruction of justice provisions, both out of respect for Congress's role in defining crimes and in the interest of providing individuals with fair warning of what a criminal statute prohibits, Marinello v. United States. Arthur Anderson, Aguilar. In several obstruction cases, the court has imposed a nexus test that requires that the wrongful conduct targeted by the provision be sufficiently connected to an official proceeding to ensure the requisite culpability. I'm not gonna keep reading all of these case citations. There are several. Section 1512C2 has been interpreted to require a similar nexus. To satisfy the nexus requirement, The government must show as an objective matter that a defendant acted in a manner that is likely to obstruct justice, such that the statute excludes defendants who have an evil purpose, but use means that would only unnaturally and improbably be successful. This is an Aguilar case citation. The endeavor must have the natural and probable effect of interfering with the due administration of justice. The government must also show as a subjective matter that the actor contemplated a particular foreseeable proceeding. Those requirements alleviate fair warning concerns by ensuring that that obstructive conduct has a close enough connection to existing or future proceedings to implicate the dangers targeted by the obstruction laws and that the individual actually has the obstructive result in mind. Courts also seek to construe statutes to avoid due process vagueness concerns. See, for example, McDonald versus United States, Skilling versus United States. Vagueness doctrine requires that a statute define a crime with sufficient definiteness that ordinary people can understand what conduct is prohibited and in a matter that does not encourage arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement the obstruction statute's requirement of acting corruptly satisfies that test. Acting corruptly within the meaning of section 1512C2 means acting with an improper purpose and to engage in conduct knowingly and dishonestly with the specific intent to subvert, impede, or obstruct the relevant proceeding. The majority opinion in Aguilar did not address the defendant's vagueness challenge to the word corruptly, but Justice Scalia's separate opinion did reach that issue and would have rejected the challenge. Statutory language need not be colloquial, Justice Scalia explained, and the term corruptly in criminal laws has a long standing and well accepted meaning. It denotes an act done with an intent to give some advantage inconsistent with official duty and the rights of others. Justice Scalia Added that in the context of obstructing jury proceedings, any claim of ignorance of wrongdoing is incredible. Lower courts have also rejected vagueness challenges to the word corruptly. This well established intent standard precludes the need to limit the obstruction statutes to only certain kinds of inherently wrongful conduct. Finally, the rule of lenity does not justify treating section 1512c2. As a prohibition on evidence impairment as opposed to an omnibus clause, the rule of lenity is an interpretive principle that resolves ambiguity in criminal laws in favor of the less severe construction as the court has as the court has repeatedly emphasized however, the rule of lenity applies only if after considering text structure history and purpose, there remains a grievous ambiguity or uncertainty in the statute that the court must simply guess as to what Congress intended. The rule has been cited, for example, in adopting a narrow meaning of tangible object in an obstruction statute when the prohibition's title, history, and list of prohibited acts indicated a focus on destruction of records. Here, as discussed above, the text, structure, and history of Section 1512C2 leaves no grievous ambiguity about the statute's meaning. Section 1512C2 defines a structurally independent general prohibition on obstruction of official proceedings. Five, other obstruction statutes might apply to the conduct in this investigation. Regardless whether Section 1512C2 covers all corrupt acts that obstruct, influence, or impede pending or contemplated proceedings, other statutes would apply to such conduct in pending proceedings, provided that the remaining statutory elements are satisfied. As discussed above, the omnibus clause in 18 U.S.C. 1503A applies generally to obstruction of pending judicial and grand proceedings. Section 1503A's protections extend to witness tampering and to other obstructive conduct that has a nexus to pending proceedings. And section 1505 broadly criminalizes obstructive conduct aimed at pending agency and congressional proceedings. Finally, 18 USC section 1512b3 criminalizes tampering with witnesses to prevent the communication of information about a crime to law enforcement. The nexus inquiry articulated in Aguilar that an individual has knowledge that his actions are likely to affect the judicial proceeding. To affect the judicial proceeding does not apply to Section 1512B3. The nexus inquiry turned instead on the actor's intent to prevent communications to a federal law enforcement official. In sum, in light of the breadth of Section 1512C2, and the other obstruction statutes, an argument that the conduct at issue in this investigation falls outside the scope of the obstruction laws lacks merit. B, constitutional defenses to applying obstruction of justice statutes to presidential conduct. The president has broad discretion to direct criminal investigations. The Constitution vests the executive power in the president and enjoins him to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. U.S. Constitution, Article 2, Sections 1 and 3. Those powers and duties form the foundation of prosecutorial discretion. The president also has authority to appoint officers of the United States and to remove those whom he has appointed. U.S. Constitution, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2. Granting authority to the president to appoint all officers with the advice and consent of the Senate, but providing that Congress may vest the appointment of inferior officers in the president alone, the heads of departments or the courts of law. Although the president has broad authority under Article 2, that authority coexists with Congress's Article 1 power to enact laws that protect congressional proceedings, federal investigations, the courts, and grand juries against corrupt efforts to undermine their functions usually the con- those constitutional powers function in harmony with the president enforcing the criminal laws under article 2 to protect against corrupt obstructive acts but when the president's official actions come into conflict with the prohibitions in the obstruction statutes any constitutional Tension is reconciled through separation of powers analysis. The president's counsel has argued that the president's exercise of his constitutional authority to terminate an FBI director and to close investigations cannot constitutionally constitute obstruction of justice. As noted above, no Department of Justice position or Supreme Court precedent directly resolved this issue. We did not find counsel's contention, however, to accord with our reading of the Supreme Court authority addressing separation of powers issues. Applying the court's framework for analysis, we concluded that Congress can validly regulate the president's exercise of official duties to prohibit actions motivated by a correct intent to obstruct justice. The limited effect on presidential power that results from that restriction would not impermissibly undermine the president's ability to perform his Article II functions. One, the requirement of a clear statement to apply statutes to presidential conduct does not limit the obstruction statutes. Before addressing Article II issues directly, we consider one threshold statute. We consider one threshold statutory construction principle that is unique to the presidency, the principle that generally statutes must be read as not applying to the president if they do not expressly apply where application would arguably limit the president's constitutional role. This clear statement rule has its source in two principles. Statutes should be construed to avoid serious constitutional questions and Congress should not be assumed to have altered the constitutional separation of powers without clear assurance that it intended that result. The Supreme Court has applied that clear statement rule in several cases. In one leading case, the court construed the Administrative Procedure Act not to apply to judicial review of presidential action. The court explained that it would require an express statement by Congress before assuming it intended the president's performance of his statutory duties to be reviewed for abuse of discretion. In another case, the court interpreted the word utilized in the Federal Advisory Committee Act to apply only to the use of advisory committees established directly or indirectly by the government, thereby excluding the American Bar Association's advice to the Department of Justice about federal judicial candidates. The court explained that a broader interpretation of the term utilized in FACA would raise serious questions whether the statute infringed unduly on the president's Article II power to nominate federal judges and violated the doctrine of separation of powers. Another case found that an established canon of statutory construction applied with special force to provisions that would impinge on the president's foreign affairs power If construed broadly, not reading all of these citations anymore, you guys should go and look it up yourselves. The Department of Justice has relied on this clear statement principle to interpret certain statutes as not applying to the president at all, similar to the approach taken in Franklin. There's a citation to a memo on conflict of interest problems arising out of the president's nomination of Nelson A. Rockefeller to be vice president under the 25th Amendment to the Constitution. Okay. Other OLC opinions interpret statutory texts not to apply to certain presidential or executive actions because of constitutional concerns. But OLC has also recognized that this clear statement rule does not apply with respect to a statute that raises no separation of powers questions were it to be applied to the president, such as the Federal Bribery Statute 18 U.S.C. Section 201. OLC explained that application of Section 201 raises no separation of powers question, let alone a serious one, because the Constitution confers no power in the president to receive bribes. In support of that conclusion, OLC noted constitutional provisions that forbid increases in the president's compensation while in office, which is what a bribe would function to do. Under OLC's analysis, Congress can permissibly criminalize certain obstructive conduct by the president, such as suborning perjury, intimidating witnesses or fabricating evidence because those prohibi- prohibitions raise no separation of powers questions. The constitution does not authorize the president to engage in such conduct. And those actions would transgress the president's duty to take care that laws be faithfully executed. Sorry. In view of those clearly permissible applications of the obstruction statutes to the president, Franklin's holding that the president is entirely excluded from a statute absent a clear statement would not apply in this context. A more limited application of a clear statement rule to exclude from the obstruction statutes only certain acts by the president, for example, removing prosecutors or ending investigations for corrupt reasons, would be difficult to implement as a matter of statutory interpretation. It is not obvious how a clear statement rule would apply to an omnibus provision like section 1512c2 to exclude corruptly motivated obstructive acts only when carried out in the president's conduct of office no statutory term could easily bear that specialized meaning for example the word corruptly has a well established meaning that does not exclude exclude exercises of official power for corrupt ends indeed An established definition states that corruptly means action with an intent to secure an improper advantage inconsistent with official duty and the rights of others. And it would be contrary to ordinary rules of statutory construction to adopt an unconventional meaning of a statutory term only when applied to the president. Nor could such an exclusion draw on a separate and established background interpretive presumption such as the presumption against extraterritoriality applied in sale. The principle that courts will construe a statute to avoid serious constitutional questions is not a license for the judiciary to rewrite language enacted by the legislature. It is one thing to acknowledge and accept well-defined or even newly enunciated, generally applicable background principles of assumed legislative intent. It is quite another To espouse the broad proposition that criminal statutes do not have to be read as broadly as they are written, but are subject to case by case exceptions. When When a proposed construction would thus function as an extra textual limit on a statute's compass, thereby preventing the statute from applying to a host of cases falling within its clear terms, it is doubtful that the construction would reflect Congress's intent. That is particularly so with respect to obstruction statutes, which have been given a broad and all-inclusive meaning. Accordingly, since no established principle of interpretation would exclude the presidential conduct we have investigated from statutes such as Section 1503, 1505, 1512b, and 1512c2, we proceed to examine the separation of powers issues that could be raised as an article Two defense to the application of those statutes Two separation of powers. Principles support the conclusion that Congress may validly prohibit corrupt obstructive acts carried out through the president's official powers. When Congress imposes a limitation on the exercise of article two powers, the limitations Validity depends on whether the measure disrupts the balance between the coordinate, between the coordinate branches. Even when a branch does not arrogate power to itself, the separation of powers doctrine requires that a branch not impair another in the performance of its constitutional duties. The separation of powers does not mean, however, that the branches ought to have no partial agency in or no control over the acts of each other. In this context, a, balance, a balancing test applies to assess separation of powers issues. Applying that test here, we conclude that Congress can validly make obstruction of justice statutes applicable to corruptly motivated official acts of the president Without impermissibly undermining his Article II functions. A. The Supreme Court separation of power, powers balancing test applies in this context. A congressionally imposed limitation on presidential action is assessed to determine the extent to which it prevents the executive branch from accomplishing its constitutionally assigned functions, and if the potential for disruption is present, whether that impact is justified by An overriding need to promote objectives within the constitutional authority of Congress. That balancing test applies to a congressional regulation of presidential power through the obstruction of justice laws. When an Article II power has not been explicitly assigned by the text of the Constitution to be be within the sole province of the president, but rather, was thought to be encompassed within the general grant to the president of the executive power, the court has balanced competing constitutional considerations. As Justice Kennedy noted in Public Citizen, the court has applied a balancing test to restrictions on the president's power to remove executive officers, a power that is not conferred by any explicit provision in the text of the Constitution as is the appointment power, but rather is inferred to be a necessary part of the executive power. Consistent with that statement, Morrison sustained a good cause limitation on the removal of an inferior officer with defined prosecutorial responsibilities after determining that the limitation did not impermissibly undermine the president's ability to perform his Article 2 functions. The court has also evaluated other general executive power claims Through a balancing test, for example, the court evaluated the president's claim of an absolute privilege for presidential communications about his official acts by balancing that interest against the judicial branch's need for evidence in a criminal case. The court has also upheld a law that provides that provided for archival access to presidential records, despite a claim of absolute presidential privilege over the records. The analysis in those cases supports applying a balancing test to assess the constitutionality of applying the obstruction of justice statutes to presidential exercises of executive power. Only in a few instances has the court applied a different framework. When the president's power is both exclusive and conclusive on the issue, Congress is precluded from regulating its exercise. In Zivatovsky, for example, the court followed Justice Jackson's familiar tripartite framework in Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer and held that the president's authority to recognize foreign nations is exclusive. But even when a power is exclusive, Congress's powers and its central role in making laws give it substantial authority regarding many of the policy determinations that proceed and follow the president's act. For example, although the president's power to grant pardons is exclusive and not subject to congressional regulation, Congress has the authority to prohibit the corrupt use of anything of value to influence the testimony of another person in a judicial, congressional, or agency proceeding. 18 U.S.C. Section 201 b 3 which would include the offer or promise of a pardon, to induce a person to testify falsely or not to testify at all. The offer of a pardon would precede the act of pardoning and thus be within Congress's power to regulate even if the pardon itself is not. Just as the speech or debate clause, U.S. Constitution, Article One, Section 6, Clause 1, absolutely protects legislative acts, but not a legislator's taking or agreeing to take money For a promise to act in a certain way, for it is taking the bribe, not performance of the illicit compact, that is a a criminal act. The promise of a pardon to corruptly influence testimony would not be a constitutionally immunized act. The application of obstruction statutes to such promises, therefore, would raise no serious separation of powers issues. B, the effect of obstruction of justice statutes on the president's capacity to perform his Article 2 responsibilities is limited. Under the Supreme Court's balancing test for analyzing separation of powers issues, the first task is to assess the degree to which applying obstruction of justice statutes to presidential actions affect the president's ability to carry out his Article 2 responsibilities. As discussed above, applying obstruction of justice statutes to presidential conduct that does not involve the president's conduct of office, such as influencing the testimony of witnesses, is constitutionally unproblematic. The president has no more right than other citizens to impede official proceedings by corruptly influencing witness testimony. The conduct would be equally improper, whether effectuated through direct efforts to produce false testimony or suppress the truth or through the actual threatened or promised use of official powers to achieve the same result. The president's action in curtailing criminal investigations or prosecutions or discharging law enforcement officials raised different questions. Each type of action involves the exercise of executive discretion in furtherance of the president's duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Congress may not supplant the president's exercise of executive power to supervise prosecutions or to remove officers who occupy law enforcement positions. Yet the obstruction of justice statutes do not aggrandize power in Congress or usurp executive authority. Instead They impose a discrete limitation on conduct only when it is taken with the corrupt intent to obstruct justice. The obstruction statutes thus would restrict presidential action only by prohibiting the president from acting to obstruct official proceedings for the improper purpose of protecting his own interests. See Volume 2, Section 3A3. The direct effect on the president's freedom of action would correspondingly be a limited one. A proclusion of corrupt official action is not a major intrusion on Article II powers. For example, the proper supervision of criminal law does not demand freedom for the president to act with the intention of shielding himself from criminal punishment, avoiding financial liability or preventing personal embarrassment. To the contrary, a statute that prohibits official action undertaken for such personal purposes furthers rather than hinders the impartial and even handed administration of the law. And the Constitution does not mandate that the president have unfettered authority to direct investigations or prosecutions with no limits whatsoever in order to carry out his Article II functions. Nor must the president have unfettered authority to remove all executive branch officials involved in the, exe- in the execution of the laws. The Constitution establishes that Congress has legislative authority to structure the executive branch by authorizing Congress to create executive departments and officer positions and to specify how inferior officers are appointed. While the president's removal power is an important means of ensuring that officers faithfully execute the law, Congress has a recognized authority to place certain limits on removal. The president's removal powers are at their zenith with respect to principal officers, that is, officers who must be appointed by the president and who report to him directly. The president's exclusive and illimitable power of removal of those principal officers furthers the president's ability to ensure that the laws are faithfully executed. Thus, there are some purely executive officials who must be removable by the president at will if he is able to accomplish his constitutional role. In light of those constitutional precedents, it may be that the obstruction statutes could not be constitutionally applied to limit the removal of a cabinet officer, such as the attorney general. In that context, at least absent circumstances showing that the president was clearly attempting to thwart accountability for personal conduct while evading ordinary political checks and balances, even the highly limited regulation imposed by the obstruction statutes could possibly intrude too deeply on the president's freedom to select and supervise the members of his cabinet. The removal of inferior officers, in contrast, need not necessarily be at will for the president to fulfill his constitutionally assigned roles, assigned role in managing the executive branch. Inferior officers are officers whose work is directed and supervised at some level by other officers appointed by the president with the Senate's consent. The Supreme Court has long recognized Congress's authority to place four because limitations on the president's removal of inferior officers whose appointment may be vested in the head of a department. U.S. Constitutional Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2. All parentheticals. Okay. The category of inferior officers includes both the FBI director and the special counsel, each of whom reports to the attorney general. Their work is thus directed and supervised by a presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed officer. Where the Constitution permits Congress to impose a good cause limitation on the removal of an executive branch officer, the Constitution should equally permit Congress to bar removal for the corrupt purpose of obstructing justice. Limiting the range of permissible reasons for removal to exclude a corrupt purpose imposes a lesser restraint on the president than requiring an affirmative showing of good cause. It follows that for such inferior officers, Congress may constitutionally restrict the president's removal authority if that authority was exercised for the corrupt purpose of obstructing justice. And even if a particular inferior officer's position might be of such importance to the execution of the laws that the president must have at-will removal authority. The obstruction of justice statutes could still be constitutionally applied to forbid removal for a corrupt reason. A narrow and discreet limitation on removal that precluded corrupt action would leave ample room for all other considerations, including disagreement over policy or loss of confidence in the officer's judgment or commitment. A corrupt purpose, pro- prohibition, therefore, would not undermine the president's ability to perform his Article 2 functions accordingly. Because the separation of powers question is whether the removal restrictions are of such a na- nature that they impede the president's ability to perform his constitutional duty, a restriction on removing an inferior officer for a corrupt reason, a reason grounded in achieving personal rather than official ends, does not seriously hinder the president's performance of his duties. The president retains broad latitude to supervise investigations and remove officials circumscribed in this context only by the requirement that he not act for corrupt personal purposes. C. Congress has powers to protect congressional grand jury and judicial proceedings against corrupt acts from any source. Where a law imposes a burden on the president's performance of Article II functions, separation of powers analysis considers whether the statutory measure is justified by an overriding need to promote objectives within the constitutional authority of Congress. Here, Congress enacted the obstruction of justice statutes to protect, among other things, the integrity of its own proceedings, grand jury investigations, and federal criminal trials. Those objectives are within Congress's authority and serve strong governmental interests. Congress has Article I authority to define generally applicable criminal law and apply it to all persons, including the president. Congress clearly has authority to protect its own legislative functions against corrupt efforts designed to impede legitimate fact-gathering and lawmaking efforts. Congress also has authority to establish a system of federal courts which includes the power to protect the judiciary against obstructive acts. The long lineage of the obstruction of justice statutes, which can be traced to at least 1831, attests to the necessity for that protection. See an act declaratory of the law concerning contempt of court, making it a crime if any person or persons shall corruptly endeavor to influence, intimidate, or impede any juror, witness, or officer in any court of the United States in the discharge of his duty, or shall corruptly obstruct, or impede, or endeavor to obstruct or impede the due administration of justice therein. The Article Three courts have an equally strong interest in being protected against obstructive acts, whatever their source. As the, as the Supreme Court explained in United States versus Nixon. A primary constitutional duty of the judicial branch is to do justice in criminal prosecutions. In Nixon, the court rejected the president's claim of absolute executive privilege because the allowance of the privilege to withhold evidence that is demonstrably relevant in a criminal trial would cut deeply into the guarantee of due process of law and gravely impair the basic functions of the court's. As Nixon illustrates, the need to safeguard judicial integrity is a compelling constitutional interest. Finally, the grand jury cannot achieve its constitutional purpose absent protection from corrupt acts. Serious federal criminal charges generally reach the Article Three courts based on an indictment issued by a grand jury, and the grand jury's function is enshrined in the Fifth Amendment. No person shall be held to answer for a serious crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. The whole theory of the grand jury's function is that it belongs to no branch of the institutional government serving as a kind of buffer or referee between the government and the people. If the grand jury were not protected against corrupt interference from all persons, its function as an independent charging body would be thwarted. And an impartial grand jury investigation to determine whether probable cause exists to indict is vital to the criminal justice process. The final step in the constitutional balancing process is to assess whether the separation of powers doctrine permits Congress to take action within its constitutional authority, notwithstanding the potential impact on Article II functions. In the case of the obstruction of justice statutes, our assessment of the weighing of interest leads us to conclude that Congress has the authority to impose the limited restrictions contained in those statutes on the president's official conduct to protect the integrity of important functions of other branches of government. A general ban on corrupt action does not unduly intrude on the president's responsibility to take care that laws be faithfully executed. To the contrary, the concept of faithful execution connotes the use of, of power in the interest of the public, not in the office holder's personal interest. And immunizing the president from the general application, I'm sorry, and immunizing the president from the general applicable And immunizing the president from the generally applicable criminal prohibition against corrupt obstruction of official proceedings would seriously impair Congress's power to enact laws to promote objectives within its constitutional authority. Accordingly, based on the analysis above, we were not persuaded by the argument that the president has blanket constitutional immunity to engage in acts that would corruptly obstruct justice through the exercise of otherwise valid article two powers three ascertaining whether the president violated the obstruction statutes would not chill his performance of article two duties applying the obstruction statutes to the president's official conduct would involve determining as a factual matter, whether he engaged in an obstructive act, whether the act had a nexus to official proceedings and whether he was motivated by corrupt intent. But applying those standards to the president's official conduct should not hinder his ability to to, to perform his Article II duties. Several safeguards would prevent a chilling effect. The existence of settled legal standards, the presumption of regularity in prosecutorial actions, and the existence of evidentiary limitations on probing the president's motives, and historical experience confirms that no impermissible chill should exist. As an initial matter, the term corruptly sets a demanding standard. It requires a concrete showing that a person acted with an intent to obtain an improper advantage for himself or someone else, inconsistent with official duty and the rights of others. That standard parallels the president's constitutional obligation ensure the faithful execution of the laws and virtually everything that the president does in the routine conduct of office will have a clear government purpose and will not be contrary to his official duty. Accordingly, the president has no reason to be chilled in those actions because in virtually all instances, there will be no credible basis for suspecting a corrupt personal motive. The point is, is illustrated by examples of conduct that would and would not satisfy the stringent corrupt motive standard. I want to read this footnote, actually, for 1091. This applies to to Section 2. A possible remedy through impeachment for abuses of power would not substitute for potential criminal liability after a president leaves office. Impeachment will remove a president from office, but would not address the underlying culpability of the conduct or serve the usual purposes of the criminal law. Indeed, the impeachment judgment clause recognizes that criminal law plays an independent role in addressing an official's conduct distinct from the political remedy of impeachment. Impeachment is also a drastic and rarely invoked remedy, and Congress is not restricted to relying only on impeachment rather than making criminal law applicable to a former president. Wow. As OLC has recognized recognizing an immunity from prosecution for a sitting president would not preclude such prosecution. Once the president's term is over or he is otherwise removed from office or by resignation or impeachment. He said you can impeach him and charge him. Okay. The point is illustrated by examples of conduct that would and would not satisfy the stringent corrupt motive standard. Direct or indirect action by the president to end a criminal investigation into his own or his family member's conduct to protect against personal embarrassment or legal liability would constitute a core example of corruptly motivated conduct. So too, would action to halt an enforcement proceeding that directly and adversely affected the president's financial interests for the purpose of protecting those interests? In those examples, official power is being used for the purpose of protecting the president's personal interests. In contrast, the president's actions to serve political or policy interests would not qualify as corrupt. The president's role as head of the government necessarily requires him to take into account political factors in making policy decisions that affect law enforcement actions and proceedings. For instance, The president's decision to curtail a law enforcement investigation to avoid international friction would not implicate the obstruction of justice statutes. The criminal law does not seek to regulate the consideration of such political or policy factors in the conduct of government. And when legitimate interests animate the president's conduct, those interests will almost invariably be readily identifiable based on objective factors." Because the president's conduct in those instances will obviously fall outside the zone of obstruction law, no chilling concern should arise. There is also no reason to believe that investigations, let alone prosecutions, would occur except in highly unusual circumstances when a credible factual basis exists to believe that obstruction occurred. Prosecutorial action enjoys a presumption of regularity absent clear evidence to the contrary. Courts presume that prosecutors have properly discharged their official duties. The presumption of prosecutorial regularity would provide even greater protection to the president than exists in routine cases, given the prominence and sensitivity of any matter involving the president and the likelihood that such matters will be subject to thorough and careful review at the most senior levels of the Department of Justice under OLC's opinion that a sitting president is entitled to immunity from indictment, only a successor administration would be able to prosecute a former administration. But that consideration does not suggest that a president would have any basis for fearing abusive investigation or prosecutions after leaving office. There are obvious political checks against initiating a baseless investigation or prosecution of a former president. And the attorney general holds The power to conduct the criminal litigation of the United States government, which provides a strong institutional safeguard against politicized investigations or prosecutions. This footnote also probably matters. Similar institutional safeguards protect Department of Justice officers and line prosecutors against unfounded investigations into prosecutorial acts. Prosecutors are generally barred from participating in matters implicating their personal interests, and are instructed not to be influenced by their own professional or personal circumstances. Justice Manual Section 9-27.260. So prosecutors would not frequently be in a position to take action that could be perceived as corrupt and personally motivated. And it's if such cases arise, criminal investigation would be conducted by responsible officials at the Department of Justice who can be presumed to refrain from pursuing an investigation absent a credible factual basis. Those facts distinguish the criminal context from the common law rule of prosecutorial immunity, which protects against the threat of suit by a defendant who often will transform his resentment at being prosecuted into the ascription of improper and malicious actions. As the Supreme Court has noted, the existence of civil immunity does not justify criminal immunity. These considerations distinguish the Supreme Court's holding in Nixon versus Fitzgerald that in part because inquiries into the president's motives would be highly intrusive. The president is absolutely immune from private civil damages actions and based on his official conduct. As Fitzgerald recognizes There is a lesser public interest in actions for civil damages than, for example, in criminal prosecutions, and private actions are not subject to the institutional protections of an action under the supervision of the attorney general and subject to a presumption of regularity. In the rare cases in which a substantial and credible basis justifies conducting an investigation of the president, the process of examining his motivations to determine whether he acted for a corrupt purpose, need not have a chilling effect. Ascertaining the president's motivations would turn on any explanation he provided to justify his actions, the advice he received, the circumstances surrounding the actions, and the regularity or irregularity of the process he employed to make decisions. But grand juries and courts would never, sorry, but grand juries and courts would not have automatic access to confidential presidential communications on those matters. Rather, they could be presented in official proceedings only on a showing of sufficient need. In any event, probing the president's intent in a criminal matter is unquestionably constitutional in at least one context. The offense of bribery turns on the corrupt intent to receive a thing of value in return for being influenced in official action, 18 U.S.C. Section 201. Be there can be no serious argument against the president's potential criminal liability for bribery offenses, notwithstanding the need to ascertain his purpose and intent. Finally, history provides no reason to believe that any asserted chilling effect justifies exempting the president from the obstruction laws. As a historical matter, presidents have very seldom been the subject of grand jury investigations. And it is rarer still for circumstances to raise even the possibility of a corrupt personal motive for arguably obstructive action through the president's use of official power. Accordingly, the president's conduct of office should not be chilled based on hypothetical concerns about the possible application of a corrupt motive standard in this context. In sum, contrary to the position taken by the president's counsel, We concluded that, in light of the Supreme Court precedent governing separation of powers issues, we had a valid basis for investigating the conduct at issue in this report. In our view, the application of the obstruction statutes would not impermissibly burden the president's performance of his Article II functions to supervise prosecutorial conduct or to remove inferior law enforcement officers. And the protection of the criminal justice system from corrupt acts by any person, including the president, accords with the fundamental principle of our, gov- of our government that no person in this country is so high that he is above the law. Conclusion. Because we determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment, we did not draw ultimate conclusions about the president's conduct. The evidence we obtained about the president's actions and intent presents difficult issues that would need to be resolved if we were making a traditional prosecutorial judgment. At the same time, if we had confidence after a thorough investigation of the facts that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Based on the facts and the applicable legal standards we are unable to reach that judgment. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. It's the Muller Report, Volume 2. It's a wrap. who all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors. All we know is to fight for They see God and everything got right.